Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We're coming off of the summer break for the month of June after recording First uh, and Second Corinthians. That took it all out of us for a month, and, <laughs> and uh, we took some time off. We're excited to come back with a book overview that we've been wanting to do for a while, one that is certainly one of the most unique books in the New Testament, the book of Philemon. Absolutely. But also coming on the heels of that over the next few weeks, we've got some really great podcast content that we're excited to get back into. So I want to kick off the discussion of the book of Philemon by saying it's always unique to come to a book that's only one page of your Bible. I mean, this is an easy one to read. And then you get into it and you realize this is a very unique, interesting book. The other one-pagers, if you think about it, 2nd and 3rd John, pretty easy. Pretty Pretty easy to figure out what's going on. Pretty easy to figure out what John is saying, although there's a little bit of code. We'll talk about that when we get into the mm-hmm. when we get into those. Uh, but Philemon is packing a lot into a, a few verses, 25 verses, and it's one of those books that I think the background makes a huge difference in understanding the text. So if you're just coming to this flat-footed, you're going to have to spend some time thinking about what is in the background of this story that Paul is talking about, that informs what he's saying. So unlike one of his other letters, like Ephesians, for example, you can just pick up Ephesians. You don't need to know anything about the church, really. You don't need to know anything about what happened before that. You can just read through it and get it. Philemon is not that kind of letter. So let's start by talking a little bit about the background. Yeah, there are obviously, like most things that involve dates, there are some disagreements. But let's just say for this letter... Uh, that Paul is in his first imprisonment in Rome. He's under house arrest. Okay, we didn't talk about this before because we, we, uh, we do some overviews on this, but we didn't go over any of the details. So you think this is a Roman imprisonment? Yeah. Why do you think that? Well, I think that if you for several reasons. Number one is I think Philemon and Colossians... And Ephesians have some connections. I'm not saying they're written at the exact on the same afternoon, mm-hmm. but they really do. For example, the whole idea of masters and slaves in both of those letters. It appears that Tychicus delivered those letters, and I would just going to say Onesimus was with him. And so, I think that Paul, during this imprisonment, I mean, obviously, chapter one. Uh, verse one, actually, verse one of this, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And so I think that he wrote uh, Ephesians, Colossians, maybe the letter to the church at Laodicea that we do not have, and this personal letter to a guy named Philemon who lived in Colossae. Yeah, I I 100% agree that Philemon and Colossians are to Colossae. And I think it's likely because of the end of Colossians that the letter to Laodiceans either immediately preceded or was sent in the same group of letters. What's interesting about the life of Paul, and we're bringing this out in our discussion here, is there is some ambiguity about how many times Paul was in prison. And where he was in prison. Yeah, I just didn't know that you were going to be, uh, you know, a hurdle on this thing. Yeah. I said there is well, debate like said, about the dates, we, but let's just say it's going to be we here. Didn't get and to we're not going to let's just say it's going to be this. Well, so <laughs> I just wonder uh, why why you thought it was the first Roman imprisonment, because 
one of the things about Paul's life is he's writing these letters as uh, a facilitator for the ministry that he's doing. So in a lot of the letters, we talked about this in First and Second Corinthians, he talks about visiting these churches again. And one of the, the one of the reasons I want to stop and talk about this is because the way that we read these letters influences what we think happens in Paul's life, especially in the gaps in the Acts narrative. Right. So there's really more than meets the eye in the beginning and the end of some of these letters. You know, like you mentioned Tychicus, that's a name that you could just skip over because it's exactly. got a lot of weird characters in right. it. But knowing that he's an associate of Paul's, that he's a letter deliverer, that tells us certain things. And um, I, I don't know that I have a strong position on when or where Philemon was written from. But if I were going to suggest something, I would say that maybe it's from an Ephesian imprisonment, which is not recorded in the book of Acts. Right. And the reason that I would argue that, and the reason that some scholars do argue that, uh, is because of the location. So if Paul is in Rome, that means that, and we'll get into this in a minute, that means that Onesimus has to have traveled a long, long way to get to Paul. And he is going to travel a long way to go back. Right. Additionally, at the end of this letter, Paul says that he's going to make a trip to Colossae quickly. He's, he, he, he tells him, prepare the he room. He intends to. He yeah, intends and that's to. key. I think that's important. So, because we don't know if he actually did. Right. Back. D- depending on where this and is written from. That's why I said first imprisonment. Right. Because his tone is very much like Philippians, which is accepted to be in his first imprisonment. Right. And so I read the tone the same way. Right. And and one of the reasons we think that in Philippians is because he mentions Caesar's household. Yes. It's just another one of those little clues that you're trying to piece these things together to say, what, where could this have been from? So with Philippians, people think Rome. They think maybe a Caesarean imprisonment. The... The reason I'm saying maybe Ephesus is because it's much closer. And yes. uh, Paul does have some thought that maybe he's going to get out of this first imprisonment. At the end of Acts, that's where we leave him, is in a house arrest kind of thing. There's not, in Rome. you know, death is not imminent. Whereas in yes. 2 Timothy, he's like, I'm, I'm going to die soon. Yes. Um, so... An Ephesian imprisonment is not an axe, but it makes sense in terms of proximity. It's not very far for Onesimus to have traveled. We're going to get into the motive of why Onesimus left and what he was doing talking to Paul in the first place. That makes a little bit more sense to me, but this up in the air. Well, I'll tell you why that makes less sense to me. Two big reasons. Number one, the fact that Ephesus is not mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, isn't conclusive, but it's persuasive to me. However, in 2 Corinthians, he does mention the imprisonments and beatings and things. Yes. So the reason that people I, are comfortable saying... I wouldn't saying say it's conclusive. Maybe there's another imprisonment. Could have because, been another imprisonment. Yeah. But if you think about his time in Ephesus, he documents some pretty exciting things. Seems like an imprisonment might have made it in. But that that's not conclusive. My second thing is... I think the close proximity, the relative close proximity of Ephesus actually argues against it because if you're a runaway slave, you want out of the country Mm -hmm. if you can get out of the country and no one is going to find you in the big melting pot that is Rome. 
It would be kind of a serendipitous occurrence for Onesimus to run into Paul in Rome, if that's where they were. The last thing I would say on this, and this is just part of the way you read these letters is, but when Paul was going to Rome, we know from the book of Romans, when he was going to Rome, his goal was to go to Spain. So the movement is the opposite direction if he's in Rome, if he really wants to visit again. You know, and scholars will argue that Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon are a bundle. If it's a Roman imprisonment, then you have Colossians and maybe Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon that are in a bundle. Right. Possibly First Timothy could be in that same bundle. I mean, these are the kinds of investigative questions you have to ask. I tend to think that if that Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon are earlier in Paul's ministry than the later epistles, first and second Timothy, possibly Philippians. Um, in, in which case, it would probably have to be earlier than a Roman imprisonment. If that is true, I would agree with you. But I'm really comfortable dating Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, of course, and Philippians in that 60 to 62 AD first imprisonment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what's good for the listeners to hear this back and forth, I think, is two thoughts. Number one, you're going to see here quickly that once we move past this, it's not essential. To what we're going to understand here. And secondly, some detective work is required because God and Paul did not consider this important enough to spell it out for us. There are a million things we say, Paul, could you just not have told us a little bit more? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's uh, it piques our interest, and I think God likes us to use our brains. But as you can tell, neither one of us is going to be dogmatic about this and say, it must be the way I see it. But it, it is interesting because it probably colors this just a little bit. I would say the one thing you know for sure, regardless of whether he was imprisoned in Caesarea, unlikely. Ephesus, more likely. Rome, most likely, uh, in my view. Paul is imprisoned. He's being held against his will. Hold that thought, by the way. Paul is being held against his will. With with several other people. Life's not going well in Mm -hmm. the sense that he's like, Lord, I've, I've got a great ministry. Why am I stuck here you know, for years in, in jail, right? What's, what's going on here? So he doesn't, this doesn't seem to be going the way he thinks is the best way to go. Nevertheless, in some way or another, Onesimus, the runaway slave from his owner, Philemon, who lives in Colossae or near Colossae, runs into Paul and becomes a Christian and helps Paul and becomes one of those disciples, if you will, of Paul, a follower of Paul as he follows Christ, one of the young men that Paul invested in. Well, when Paul finds out he's a runaway slave, he writes a letter to Philemon and says, Onesimus, you need to go back. This is the right thing to do. And he writes a letter to Philemon, urging him to do the right thing in this situation. And so that's the context of this letter that we can all agree on is uh, the idea of a runaway slave going back with a letter from Paul. And you made a really good point that I think is worth repeating is, because of the facts I just told you, this book is often looked at as the word on slavery, the institution of slavery, which was very different in the ancient world than in American experience. So please just set aside for a moment our uniquely American experience of slavery of a different race. 
that's not what's happening here. Okay, I just want us to expand our mind a little bit. But a lot of people think this is about slavery. But you made a good point, and I think you're right, that slavery, as important as it is, is actually only a part of a bigger story. What do you think is really this letter is really about? Well, I think the background is important. I mean, this, this is a real-world example. This is not a parable. This mm-hmm. is something that Paul found himself in the middle of, and he's doing what we're all called to do, which is to pray, seek the will of God, apply what the Bible says to the situations we find ourselves in. Paul just so happened to find himself in a situation where he was with a runaway slave. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it is, it is exactly about slavery. But if you read what Paul says, this could just as easily be several different situations. It could be a child running away from their parents. It could be a woman fleeing an abusive marriage. I mean, it could be several different things. And so several times in this book, what I want to do is say it's not only about slavery. Right. But it is also about slavery. And one of the reasons is because the slavery in the ancient world is different than the slavery that we think of in the the United States. When we talk about slavery, we think of race-based slavery. People say chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, as I said a minute ago, in the Roman Empire, it wasn't racially based all all the time. Yeah. But sometimes it was. But in those situations, it was more incidentally about being from a different nation than it was being a different race. It was your people got conquered, so you got taken into slavery. Not because you don't look the same as we do. You're less than a human being, and we're going to put you into slavery. So there is so much literature on this and so much to wade through on this that it would be hard to do, do justice in this podcast. But... Yeah, the minimum is it is about slavery because that's the situation. And the maximum is it is about way more than slavery because of what Paul actually says in this situation. Right. And because of the differences between what was happening then and and what happened 150 years ago and 100 years before that in the United States. So the other thing I want to point out on this topic, though, is that there are other places in the New Testament that talk about slavery. Right. And uh, I think the New Testament has a pretty consistent witness on the topic of slavery. But I don't think you need to go directly to the passages on slavery to figure out what we need to think about slavery, especially in the American context. I mean, I would rather go to Genesis 1 to talk about slavery than I would Philemon or 1 Peter chapter 3 and or Colossians or anywhere else that slavery comes up, I'd rather talk about the dignity of all human beings and say, if that's the case, then you obviously can't own slaves. That is a completely and totally heretical notion that you could own another person if you believe what the Bible says about human beings, much less what the Bible says about slavery. Right. Now, within that context, things get a little bit wonky when we start talking about the fact that people in the Bible own slaves. Patriarchs, the patriarchs own slaves, mm-hmm. and especially in the in the conversation we're having right now as a country, we think about, well, you know, was George Washington a good person or not, or is Thomas Jefferson worth remembering or not? Right. Well, he, they they both did a lot of good things, but they both owned slaves, mm-hmm. and they had different relationships there. We we tend to just transplant those conversations into the Bible, right? 
and say, well, you know, the Bible's kind of soft on slavery. When I don't really think the Bible is very soft on slavery. Oh, no. I mean, but you take this reductionist, simplistic, I'll, I'm just going to be pejorative and call it childish way of looking at the Bible. And you say, well, Jesus never condoned slavery. And you also say, Jesus never explicitly condemned slavery. Well, I guess the Bible doesn't talk about slavery. The Bible has everything to say about slavery. Genesis 1, that we're all created in the image of God, is all you need to know about slavery. Well, let me put it this way. All you need to know about the kind of slavery that happened in America. Yeah, I think one of the things that is a nice caveat is to understand that at times in the ancient world, slavery could mean something closer to an apprenticeship. Yes. So, for example... The, the most famous philosopher of the second century is named Epictetus, or Epictetus is sometimes what he's called. Mm-hmm. He was a slave in right. the royal household and then got his freedom at one point and became the most famous and influential philosopher of the second century. Right. And sometimes it was a trade where you have too many kids and you don't get the tax credits that you thought you were going to get from the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, you've got a real problem on your hands, and so you sell your child into an apprenticeship. It could be like that. It could also be incredibly brutal and terrible. Right. And, and one of the things I think we need to avoid is diminishing slavery so much in the Bible that the, the commands that Paul or, or, or even in the Old Testament gives within the slave relationship with their master become meaningless. So if you say, you know, Paul says, obey your masters, work hard for them, be Christian in the way that you are a slave. Mm -hmm. And then we've defined slavery as totally enjoyable and in no way threatening or uncomfortable because it was different than today. Then we've actually gutted those passages. So we need to keep a very wide perspective of what slavery was like in the ancient world, ranging from basically an apprenticeship to very brutal. Slaves were beaten. They were killed by their masters. They were treated as property. And within that context, we read letters like Philemon. So, for example, we don't know what Philemon's relationship was with Onesimus, his slave. Right. We can infer that he may have been beaten. We can infer that he wanted to get away because he ran away. Right. For some reason, he wanted to get away. And so we find ourselves in the middle of the situation where Paul's saying, okay, Onesimus has become a Christian, and I think it's the right thing to do to send him back to Philemon, and I'm going to send him with this letter. Mm-hmm. And one of the unique things or about, about the study of Philemon is it's contested, or it's, it's at least argued over, as to what Paul actually wants to happen when Onesimus gets back. What do you think? This is probably one of the most brilliant things about the Bible. Besides being inspired, it's also brilliant. And that is, it causes us to think. So, a couple of, couple of background items. Because Paul says in the letter, you know, whatever he owes you, charge it to my account. I, Paul, will repay it. I'm going to infer from that, and most people do, that when Onesimus ran away, he either had stolen something and ran away to avoid being punished, or he ran away for his freedom, and when he did, he took something from Philemon that wasn't his to take. 
So I'm going to make that assumption that he he has wronged Philemon in some way mm-hmm. because that's the tone of the letter. Second thing I'll say is this. As a 21st century person who thinks about American slavery that was uniformly oppressive, almost completely oppressive, ancient world, you could be a slave and be the CFO of a company. And you could also be a slave and be worked to death in the mines. Mm -hmm. But in American history, it is uniformly bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. But we think about it from that perspective. You think, well, surely Paul, obviously, he's going to tell Philemon, I'm sending him back and I want you to set him free. But he doesn't. Listen to what he says. He says, accordingly, after he says hello, he says, I am, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is proper required, necessary. Those are all, that's what that verb means, what you ought to do. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. He says, because I don't want whatever you do to be done out of coercion, but out of love. Now, let me tell you what's most interesting to me about that is you, I I could order you to do what is required, but instead I want you to do it out of love. Paul, Mm -hmm. what is required? Mm-hmm. He doesn't tell us what's required. So he wants to Philemon to do what's right to a brother in Christ, but he doesn't say, oh, and by the way, the right thing is obviously to set him free right now. Yeah, that, that's something that people have a hard time with, as you mentioned, because of the context and because of the compassion involved in this. And what I think he's saying is is pretty strong to Philemon about what he should do with Onesimus. Yes. But I think we all agree that Paul has not written a treatise here on total abolition of slaves in the Roman Empire in all of its forms. Right. And some of us have a longing to see that in the New Testament. Why didn't they do that? Right. And I think what Paul says is actually even more ingenious than that, even if Paul had written that. I think what he says here has that effect. I think as Christians, we have the mandate to say we should fight for the abolition of slavery. Yes. And I think we should repudiate those who've used the Bible in the American South, in Britain, wherever, to say the Bible supports the institution of slavery. Or the Bible supports that a woman has to stay in the house with an abusive man, or what you know, whatever else yes. you want to bring up. What Paul says is actually so ingenious that it spans all of those things right. as a principle. So in the beginning, as you mentioned, Paul is laying it on pretty thick here with Philemon. This is one of Paul's more persuasive letters. This has a feel almost like 2 Corinthians, where Paul is not being um, misleading, but he is certainly doing his best not to lay a guilt trip necessarily, but to let Philemon know what needs to be done. So he says, I'm not going to command you to do this, just like when he says earlier uh, in the Corinthian correspondences, and and he brings this up again, with in First and Second Thessalonians, mm-hmm. I have the right to be paid as an apostle, but I'm not going to exercise that right because I don't want to be a burden on you. Right. I'm going to work with my hands and give up my right. It's a similar sense here. I could command you the authority that I have as an apostle of Christ. I could command you to do what I want you to do, but He does something different, which is exactly the spirit of this letter. 
So if you look at his prayer, here's a great rule of thumb for Paul's letters. His prayers at the beginning of the letters are like a table of contents for the following material. So he prays, I thank God when I remember you in my prayers. First of all, he's praying for Philemon. Yes. And because I've heard of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, it's likely that Philemon has a church in his house. He's a leader in the church. Yes. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge. People talk about sometimes uh, the lack of evangelism, talking about evangelism Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. This is a clear example. It is. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is highly relational language. Yes. I just want to point out two words. In the, I'm, we're reading the ESV here, or at least I am. Are I reading am. The ESV? Yes, also. Um, and it says, I pray that the sharing of your faith. So one of the things that we have to remember here is that sometimes words have a little bit of a cluster of meanings. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the sharing of your faith is the giving of your faith, the sharing evangelism of your faith. But this word here is actually the word koinonia. Mm. The fellowship is what we could say as well. The fellowship of your faith. That means the faith that you share with other people and the fellowship that we have because we are both Christians leads us to say things like in verse 7, I derive joy and comfort from your love, my brother. There's Mm -hmm. a familial connection. Yes. Then we go into this appeal. So he says, I could command, I'm not going to, uh, but I appeal for my child, Onesimus. More familial language. This is the family of faith. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. So... Paul is making it very clear that this is no longer a master, slave, pastor, friend, business associate kind of relationship. This is now a family relationship. And and Paul demonstrates that. I would have loved to keep him with me, he says in 13. And probably because when you're in prison, now, depending on where Paul's in prison, the the, um, circumstances are different. But Onesimus could be of a lot of use to him when he's oh, in prison. Oh, absolutely. So he says, I, I would keep him here because he's being very useful to me, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he is parted from you, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant. Again, we're resetting this relationship. Yes. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. He is a brother to me, Paul says, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So then 17 is where he really gives the appeal for what he wants him to do. Uh-huh. So it's like, okay, get to the point. What do you want Philemon to do? So if you consider me your partner, and that word again mm-hmm. here is koinonia. If you consider right. us to have this family relationship then receive him or welcome him as you would welcome me. So what Paul's basically asking Philemon to do is to completely re-envision his relationship 
with Onesimus. And I'm not saying that that means he frees him. I'm just saying that underlying the relationship they have as a master and as a slave, however construed in the ancient world, now their primary relationship is that they are brothers in Christ. Right. I, I think there's huge implication in that. First of all, two points. One, I read this whole introductory part. Some people read it and say, oh, he's buttering up Philemon. Well, he is being persuasive, but I actually read it. Let me just say this. This is not exactly right, but it's sort of a Philemon. You claim to be a follower of Christ, and now we're going to find out if you really are. Now, that's mm-hmm. I'm not doing this justice, but I think what he's saying is, I see signs in you of your faith, your love, these things. I know that you love Jesus Christ. If so, then you will receive him as your brother as you would receive. In other words, he's teaching. He's saying this is what it looks like. This is what reconciliation looks like in the family of Christ. Right. And I I think there's an empathetic tone here. I think he's saying this as in this is who we are, like you said. Yeah. This is who we are. This is what we do as Christians. And at the same time, he's not afraid in verse uh, 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. I want to talk for a minute about reconciliation as an activity in the Christian life. Because mm-hmm. I think the biggest takeaway here is not about slavery. I think slavery is an important point, but as we said, there's more here than just talking about slavery. And one of the things that we get to see in this letter is, what the activity of reconciliation actually looks like. So how do you reconcile somebody? Sometimes we think that reconciling means that we both agree on something. And there's and certainly reconciliation can take place. If something happens that was a misunderstanding and we clear it up, right. we're reconciled. But this is not a misunderstanding. Right. Everyone agrees on what happened. Right. Onesimus ran away, he is Philemon's slave. And he stole something or something happened. He harmed finally. He violated the the law, the laws of the day. But Paul is saying, yes, but there is a more important event that actually happened than the fact that he ran away. The most important event is that now Onesimus has become a Christian. And one of the things about reconciliation is, biblically speaking, the reconciliation that we have in Christ is the building block for any other kind of reconciliation. And so what happens when we were reconciled to God is not that we clarified a misunderstanding. Right. So it's not a matter of, oh, I thought you were sinful. And you say, no, it was extenuating circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know, explain. You don't know what I've been through. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually the victim here. And God says, oh, I misjudged this situation, and we reconcile. That's not how you reconcile. Right. Instead, like in Romans 5.1, for example, which I think is one of the best passages, it says, now we have reconciliation through the righteousness of Jesus exactly. Christ. We've been made right with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is modeling this kind of reconciliation, which takes place between people through a mediator. Let me model this a little bit and see what you think about this example or metaphor uh, as a, a parent with children. So when you were little, your, you and your brothers hypothetically would get into arguments. Okay, that's not a hypothetical. You would get into arguments with each other, and you'd be angry with each other, and you'd each say, it's your fault, no, it's your fault, etc. So you come to your father, and your father gets you together. Now, as the dad, 
you can just say, shake hands, say I'm sorry, and let's move on. You could coerce this. You know, I have the authority as your dad, Paul. I have the authority as an apostle to tell you to do what's right. But is anything really changed? No, nothing's changed mm-hmm. by that. And Paul knows nothing's going to change by that. Instead, you go to the second phase and you start listening. He said, well, but he did this to me. Well, he did this. Yeah, but that's a lot worse. He punched me. All I did was take his toy. Now you begin to judge in a secular way. Now, this is a secular world. Like, okay, whose wrong is greater? Who's relatively innocent? Who's not? That's also not useful mm-hmm. as a parent. That's not what you want. What you want as a parent is you want to say, listen, there's something even more important than who did the worst wrong to each other here. You're brothers. You're always going to be brothers. And you're always going to care about each other more than you're going to care about your toys and more than you're going to care about this argument. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's not exactly what's happening here. Yeah, I think that the, the model of reconciliation that we're getting in this passage is personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's not commanding them to work out their differences. The model of reconciliation here is Paul leveraging his relationship with each of them to bring their relationship together, uh, their relationship with each other back together. So it's the same thing that happens in the gospel. So in the gospel, you are not reconciled directly to God. That would be terrible because the way that that would happen is you would undergo his wrath and you would spend eternity apart from him. Right. Instead, what happens is Jesus intervenes, Mm -hmm. takes the penalty, gives righteousness, and in on the cross, Jesus essentially, and now I'm not trying to get into any weird Trinitarian theology here, but right. essentially Jesus acts on behalf of God and on behalf of man right. with one hand reaching out to God and one hand reaching out to man. And because he is in relationship with both of them, he reconciles them to exactly. each other. Exactly. That's exactly what Paul is modeling with Onesimus and Philemon. Paul has a great relationship with Onesimus because he's become his son in the faith. He's become a Christian. They've gotten to know each other. Paul also has a good relationship with Philemon. He was leading the church there. Uh-huh. He, um, you know, in Colossians, we see that he's discipling their pastor. He has a good relationship with Philemon. And so what he's going to do is he's going to use his relationship with both of them to bring their relationship back together. In the same way that Paul is saying, look, I'm your brother and I'm your brother, that means you guys are brothers. So that's the way that gospel reconciliation works. When we have another Christian that we are um, separated from, one of the ways that we are reconciled is Christ is my Savior, Christ is your Savior, that means we are both children of God. That means we are both in Christ together. That is our defining relationship. And that's what Paul does. So Paul intervenes on both sides here. Mm-hmm. He respects Philemon enough to write this letter the way that he writes it. And he also says to Philemon, hey, if Onesimus has a, has a toll to be paid, put it on my account. Because now he and I are united. Right. So it's it, it. There's a lot of resonance here with other biblical stories. Absolutely. So you get the Good Samaritan coming in, where he pays for a person that he doesn't necessarily have anything to do with. Right. In fact, they should be enemies. You get sacrificial love. And then you have the prodigal son. Yes. Where you know he doesn't deserve to come back really and be treated as a son, but 
the father forgives him and treats him as a son and brings a relationship back. This is a bigger theme than just Philemon. This is a this is an yes. entire Bible kind of theme. Hence, it's about slavery, but it's not only about slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, one other observation I would make. So, hopefully, by this time, you started out thinking of Philemon as that evil slave owner, and by this time, you're thinking, "Wow, Paul's asking a lot of Philemon to overlook." What, what we all agree was a wrong that was done to him. I'd also just point out uh, this fact. Philemon is, is risking something for his faith in Christ. And so is Onesimus, because Onesimus is going back. Mm-hmm. He had no intention of going back before he became a Christ follower. And then Paul said, I'd like to keep you here, but it's not right. You yeah. have wronged him. He is a brother in Christ. You have to go back, take this letter, and go. And, you know, Onesimus didn't have to go, mm-hmm. but he did. And so he, too, is risking because he doesn't know what Philemon will do. Mm-hmm. Will he set him free? Probably he doesn't even expect that. Will he have me whipped? Will he, you know, what will he do to me? And so there's also this idea that reconciliation isn't easy for either part, mm-hmm. party. There's a lot of trust in Christ in any time you, you have reconciliation. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways is both of them are risking, both of them are giving, both of them are uncomfortable. All three of them are uncomfortable. I tend to read verse 22 at the end. I, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will graciously be given to you. I tend to read that not as another power play right. on Paul's part, which is the way that some people read this text, but as a genuine statement of, I'm, I'm hoping to come back, and when I do, I want to stay with you. Right. And if you just think about this, again, th- this is not a hypothetical. This is not a parable. Right. This is a real-life letter where Paul really was intending to go back to Colossae, and when he visited to stay with Philemon. It would be so easy. Most of us would take the route of, after I cleared up this little problem, I'm never talking to Philemon again because that would be so awkward. Because what if he's upset? Right. We're going to do what I asked him to do. I mean, you just want to avoid that. But what Paul shows us is true reconciliation, peacemaking. You know, It goes back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Right. And being a peacemaker means you have to keep the relationship intact. You have to continue giving to the relationship. Paul fully intended to continue his relationship with Philemon, right. even after writing this letter and appealing to him to do the right thing. Right. So all around, we see that this, this context is relational, it's sacrificial, it's risky. Mm-hmm. Um on every party involved. In that's this. and that's the key because I, you know, my natural instinct is to read this like, okay, it's a story. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? There are no bad guys in this story. I mean, you can tell that Paul loves Onesimus like a son, but he also loves Philemon, and he right. makes that clear to Philemon as well. So, what are your takeaways from this in terms of modern times? So. We read this. We don't have this institution of slavery anymore in any form. Right. What do you take away from this? You know, a couple things. One is my personal belief about the way this likely ended, and that's conjecture. But before we get to that, I would simply say, if, if you read this 500 years in the future, 
and you don't even know what slavery was, is that some ancient institution? You still clearly hear reconciliation, mm-hmm. Christ-like reconciliation. Well, apparently one guy here wronged the other guy. We don't really understand how because we don't do that stuff anymore. But wow, look at this. This is the model for reconciliation. Mm-hmm. This is how Christians deal with it. The second thing is more subtle to me. I think it is brilliant in that Jesus and Paul come into a fallen, broken world. And I would say the existence of slavery in any form, not just the American history form, was wrong. And yet there were so many things wrong. And you can't fix that overnight. And you, God could have coerced it. But like I said, you could say everybody shake hands and go to your corner, but nothing really changes. Mm-hmm. And so this is the most brilliant way... If you said to me, Terry, how could you guarantee that slavery would be done away with? How could you guarantee that marriages would be kept together when one partner left? How could you make sure that Christian business partnerships were handled in a godly way in the future? Would you just write down two or three commands for me? Couldn't do it. Would you give a model for what it looks like for Christian brothers and sisters to deal with wrongs to one another? That sets you on the trajectory to solve more problems than we even know. This is brilliantly transforming. Yeah, I would take away something similar in the sense that I do think we fight for broad cultural and social change. So it's easy (coughs) to have this conversation right now because of what's going on in America. So do we need to think broadly about race and reconciliation in our country? Of course we do. Do we need to think about the legal aspect of the the different dimensions of the problems that we have? Absolutely we do. But in addition to that, and I would actually say undergirding that as a foundation for that, we have to remember that as Christians, we have something available to us that is infinitely more powerful than judicial and legislative reforms, as important as those are. I get tired of people making the attack on Christians that they're willing to fight legislatively against abortion but not legislatively against race and racism. I don't don't think that's true of Christians, and I don't want that to be true. But, But there is something more foundational than legislative processes, and that is the one thing that Paul insists on in this book that you can control is whether or not you receive someone as a brother or not. Right. That's the one thing that he says. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He he essentially leverages his relationship for reconciliation. And that is something that we can all do. Whether we are the one who is wronged, whether we are the one who has wronged, whether we are the person in the middle with the relationship to fix it, to make peace, we actually can control on a relational level whether or not we are about the business of reconciliation in the world. And that's the starting place. I agree. And it's not as simple as forgive everybody everything. That's not reconciliation. That's actually oppressive. And that's why Paul doesn't say, by the way, I know he stole from you. I know he ran away. I know he did something really wrong to you. But you know what? You're a Christian. You just have to forgive the whole thing. He doesn't say that because he realizes, wait a minute, I love both of you. And I want real reconciliation. And I think we need to have a little more nuanced view of this than we typically do. 
the secular idea is, well, Christians, you believe in forgiveness, so you should forgive anybody no matter what they've done. Well, the problem with that is that's not really love. Love seeks the good of the other person. It's entirely possible in this situation, and I'm going to give you how I, th- I think the perfect ending to this would be. If I could write it, here's what it would be. Onesimus sold himself into slavery. Very common. Because he had no prospects, he had no education, and he sold himself to Philemon. He took the money, he banked it, and usually within about 10 years of working for Philemon, you would be able to buy your freedom. And when you did, you didn't just go your own way, you became a freed man, meaning you still had obligations to Philemon, but he had obligations to you. If somebody sued you that had more money, Philemon would come to your aid. And so in ancient times, it was entirely possible that this is how you got a good start in life. And so I like to think of Onesimus in that regard. And I like to think Onesimus goes back and Philemon says, you know what you did was wrong. Yes, I did. Would you forgive me? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I will. I want you to continue your apprenticeship with me because that's what you need. You've got five more years and at the end, you're free and I'm going to help you set up in business. That happened all the time. Now, I, you could say as a 21st century American, we should free him right away. And I'd go, well, maybe but is that really best for Onesimus? I like to think that this story ended with Philemon saying, well, if you were my son, this is what I would do. And that's what he did. Yeah, I, I, like, to, I like to think about what their relationship would have been like when he came back. One of the unique things about the first century church is you had masters and slaves. You had free people and not free people, you had Jews and you had Gentiles and Greeks and every mix all in the church together. And these were not big churches. These were small churches, uh, house churches, where you were standing next to your slave worshiping. And I think the way that Paul portrays this is you could never, ever see that relationship the same way again. Instead of viewing... I'm a Jew, and that's a Gentile. Or instead of viewing whatever else, that person has a certain social status and I don't. Instead, you in the church are one in Jesus Christ. You are brothers, you are sisters, you treated each other that way. And I think that's the template for reconciliation today. I think we don't have some of the same boundary markers, but we have others. We have other ways of looking down on people. We have other ways of of wronging people that are all brought into focus in the church where we're called to live in the kind of reconciliation that Paul advocates here. I mean, I don't think Paul was saying tongue-in-cheek that he wanted Philemon to count anything that Onesimus had done to his own account. I think he's really serious no, about he's that. He's like, I will pay you back. That he actually would put his money or his reputation or his uh, leverage at stake for making this relationship right. And I think that's mm-hmm. a template for us for every kind of reconciliation. And, and I would argue, and I think you'd probably agree, this is the only real basis for reconciliation. The world's looking for reconciliation in a lot of ways, but if you think about it, there's no firm foundation under that. This familial, faith-based brother-sister-father-son relationship this very personal thing is the only lasting basis for reconciliation. Yeah, it's the lasting is the is the is the key word there because you, you have people say, well, you, so you don't think that any reconciliation can happen outside of Christ? No, I, I do. I, I and I hope it does. I think yeah. truces are about as good as you get in I the agree. world, and I hope that we get a lot of truces. 
um, in the sense that everything that human beings doing outside of God is temporary. And if you read through the Bible, you realize that at the end, reconciliation does happen. And it happens through the cross of Jesus Christ and the uniting of all people. So at the end, we get reconciliation. We get every tribe, every tongue, and and they're worshiping God in heaven together. You get every knee bowing at the name of Jesus Christ, whether willingly or forcibly. It's the great leveler of humanity. And so, yes, ultimately, there are temporary fixes, and, and, and we want to fight for those as much as we can. But ultimately, the only kind of reconciliation happens through Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to keep in mind. It is the only lasting kind of reconciliation. We can pass all the laws that we want to outlaw racism, but the only way that racism goes away is through reconciliation before God. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.